Thank you, team, for that worship and song this morning. We turn our attention now to the Word of God and continue our worship through the hearing and the reception and the preaching of God's Word. Open in your Bibles, if you will, to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, verses 14 to 21 was read for us this morning by Jake. We're going to turn our attention now to that section of Scripture and listen to what the Lord has to say to us. But first, I, I would like you to imagine a scenario. Imagine going to your pastor about your desire to go on the mission field. Now, you set up the time, you enter his office, you're excited about this time because God's placed on your heart a burden that you just can't quiet down. And you're expecting that your pastor will give you that last bit of a boost and maybe some advice about where to go from this point on. So you, you outline your, your excitement, your, your plan. You even have printed out a blog article that you've written about this and you share it with him. And imagine how discouraging it would be to hear your pastor tell you, sit down. If God wants to reach the heathen, he can do so without your help. Such was the experience of William Carey in the 1790s as he described his desire to reach the lost with a local pastor. William Carey had been a shoe repairman who, through the influence of a co-worker, became convinced of his need for Christ, and he got saved. Carey started to read his Bible faithfully and became convinced that he personally and the church he was in corporately was not doing the revealed will of God. Regarding his infant baptism in the Church of England, he decided after reading the Bible that as a believer now, as an adult, he needed to be baptized. So he found a Baptist pastor to baptize him. Now, I'm not promoting Baptist churches here at this point. I'm not trying to take an extreme left turn here. But I'm bringing that up to point out that William Carey although uneducated theologically, was scripturally deep and he was theologically informed because he went to the word of God. And that's going to be important here in just a minute. Now, as he considered what both the Church of England and even the Baptists of his day steeped as they were in Calvinism that was a hyper form of the Calvinism such that if you were to say that you had a desire to reach the lost, they would tell you, kind of as a, a group of the clergy at that time, that God, through his apostles in the first century, had already gotten that done. And that now, if you were appointed to life, if you were ordained for eternal life, God would make that happen in his own good time and in his own good way. Now, Carrie... William Carey, as he studied the Word of God, became absolutely convinced in the sovereignty of God, like we've studied in Romans chapter 9. He was certain, as the Scripture says it, that it is true. But he was also convinced that as the Scripture said to go and reach the lost, and as Jesus himself said in Matthew 28, 19 through 20, that we are to go into all the world and preach the gospel, that we are to baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, 
that that's not something that was accomplished a long time ago. It's something that falls in the laps of every succession and every generation of believer. And so this morning, as we consider this scripture, we're going to look at this whole passage in terms of two words, good news, with an exclamation mark. I, I made sure that that was in there because that's important. The force of this is that, yes, the good news from God has gotten out to the whole world. But the theme for today is, as you have received the good news, be faithful to spread the good news. As you have received this good news, be faithful to spread this good news. You see, here in Romans 10, 14 to 21, the focus is again on the faithfulness of God to get the good news to all people groups, even his people Israel, who had rejected him and who continue to reject him time and again. God's faithfulness to send out messengers with the good news of Jesus Christ is the first half of this text. And the second half relates to Israel's response of rejection. And so this morning, I want us to get into the text and seek to understand how God related this message to that first century church in Rome and how it applies to us here in 21st century West Park. So stay glued to the text this morning. And let's begin by looking back at verse 13 from the passage that Pastor Sam preached here a few weeks ago. That verse says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen, Amen indeed. That is our message that we preach. Whoever, everyone is everyone. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord not might be saved, not could potentially be saved if all of the conditions were just right. But the promise of God is that that person will be saved. This is an activity of God that's in focus here. So as we get into the text today, there are some questions that get asked. Like, if that's the case, and if a person who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, then what's necessary for that call to take place? That's what we're going to look at in the first place this morning, the necessity of getting out the good news. The necessity of the good news. Look at verse 14, if you will, and I'll read that again. It says there, how then will they call on him? So Paul's raising that question. How is it possible that someone will hear and call on the name of the Lord? Well, how will they call on him in whom they have not believed, he asks. And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? You see, Paul wants us to understand that in order to have someone call on the name of the Lord, there are some things that have to take place first, not of conditions that the person needs to meet in order to be saved, but so that that good news can get to them in the first place. If we take them in reverse order this morning, here's what we have. We have Christ sending out preachers, we have those preachers preaching, and we have people believing after they have heard. So let's get into this first and look at how, on the one hand, Christ sends out preachers. 
There are a couple of things that we need to note as we look at this text, and that's particularly true concerning the words themselves this morning. Now, as you look down at verse 15, where it asks, how are they to preach unless they are sent? This word sent, if we're considering Christ sending out preachers, if we look at the word sent, it's that word apostello. And you can hear in that the word that we use in English, apostle. Now, that word, on the one hand, describes a special category of people. Those are people like Peter, James, and John, and Paul, who were sent out by Jesus himself, having seen the resurrected Jesus and received a mission from him in particular to set up the foundation of the early church. Now, we don't have those kind of apostles running around today, despite what billboards and church signs tell you. All right, that is a category that I would agree with 18th century Baptist preachers in William Carey's day. They were a unique bunch and their mission is done. But the mission that they gave was from Christ to be applied to all generations. So in another sense, Jesus is still sending out a lesser, or not less important, but lowercase apostle, people who are being sent out now in the form of preachers, pastors, missionaries, and everyday Christians, taking the gospel back into their mission fields of the home, workplaces, schools, and recreation spaces of everyday life. You see, Christ is sending out people to get the message out all over the place. And maybe this will make sense as we look at the next word, preacher. Right? These preachers preach. The word for preacher in verses 14 and 15 is that word caruso. Caruso. And this word in the Greek has the idea of being a herald. H, not, not the name of the man, herald, but H-E-R-A-L-D, herald, like a town crier, somebody who's delivering the news. Imagine a society, which was the majority of human history up until the 20th century and the 21st century, where you didn't have a lot of printed material to hand around in the form of newspapers and magazines, and you didn't have a public address system that would go beyond basically the town square. You'd have people out in the public spaces crying out to anyone who could hear them the news of what was happening around their society and around the world. If you wanted to know the news, you'd come and you would listen to the herald in the town square. Now, as we look at this word Caruso, it's talking about somebody who is heralding the good news. And in this word, Caruso, is this idea that we are urging people to respond to it. If there is something that has happened of such monumental import, then that person would be sharing the news and calling on people to order their lives in line with this news. If you're, if you're about to hear from a herald, a bomb is going to drop here in about 30 minutes. You don't go into the coffee shop and sit down for that 30 minutes and wait for it, do you? You get out of the way and you get as far away from there as possible. You hear news and you respond to it, right? There's an aspect with this preaching that goes beyond what we typically think of as what happens here in this space on a Sunday morning. 
Let's consider, consider two examples, and I want you to think about who is clearly preaching. You know, the first example is Pastor Sam. You know, he's not here today, but consider him two weeks ago preaching on the first half of Romans 10, right? I think he was in the zone. I was sitting about right there where some of you are sitting this morning, and my wife leaned over to me and was so encouraged by it, and I just kind of felt my heart warmed hearing the first few verses of Romans 10. I mean, he was preaching the word, he was telling us what's in here, he was applying it to our lives, and he was calling on us even at the end, to raise our hands if we did not yet know Christ and to confess him that day as Savior and Lord. All right, so he's the first example. The second example is Linda. I'm making her up. There could be a Linda here who did this this week. Amen, praise God. But I didn't know about it, so forgive me. The example is just for the point. All right, the second example, though, is Linda. She's a widower in her late 50s who has a strong burden for her coworker, Kelly. Linda has been a follower of Jesus for 25 years. She's never taught a Sunday school class or led a small group. She certainly never preached a message. But she invites Kelly to lunch one day and over lunch relates some of the challenges that she's been through and relates those challenges back to the grace of Jesus in her life. She takes time to tell Kelly that God loved her enough to show her that she was sinful, but that Jesus loved her and died for her, and that she believed on him and was saved. She shared that Kelly could have that same experience if she would consider the good news of God's love for her. So I ask, which one of these people was preaching? If we understand Caruso, then both were preaching in the sense of the word's meaning in the text. Preaching, in this sense, in other words, does not mean merely the delivery of a sermon, but it is talking about the transmission of important news, whether it is here on a Sunday morning or out in the spaces that I will never reach through the preaching of the message here. There is an element that relates back to that herald in the town city, in the town square. I think you might be helped by looking at the scripture that Paul quotes. Look at what he says when you look down at verse 15 again. How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. This comes from Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7. And it says there, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Here's the context right before we get to the passage in Isaiah that was preached here on Good Friday about the suffering of the Messiah. Already, Israel, who had been in captivity, is getting a preview, not only of that suffering Messiah, but of a time when God will come through for his people and deliver them from their captivity. At such a time, the watchmen on the city walls will run from his post back into the city and proclaim the majestic message, our God reigns. And when people would hear that, would they go back about their lives? 
Would they pretend that they're still in captivity? No. They would order their lives under that authoritative message that was shared. They would rejoice. Our God reigns. And if they were doubtful that their God reigns, then this was their invitation to repent and to submit themselves under him. But you've got somebody who's running in, and it looks like he might even be in his bare feet. And for some reason, they're described as beautiful. It reminds me of a story that my wife shared with me, and that actually I was in a play when I was in high school, acting out the life of the people surrounding a missionary named Darlene Dibler Rose. Perhaps you've read her story before. She and her husband were missionaries uh, to the country of Guinea before World War II began. And her husband was going out into the jungles surrounding there, uh, getting the gospel out to people, and then he would come back and he would stay home for a while. The problem was his feet had gotten infected with what they called jungle rot. And so his wife, every time he came home, would have to unwrap the bandages from the last time, peel off dead layers of skin, sorry to be gross, rub ointment on his feet. It was funny to watch my high school classmates trying to reenact this, by the way, when they did this. And then after having done that, carefully bind them up again. There was a doctor who was in charge of their mission who watched this process and advised Darlene on how to care for her husband. And he watched this and concluded in his mind that it was the most nauseating thing he'd ever seen. But as he was walking out, the Lord laid this scripture on his mind, how beautiful are the feet of those who deliver the good news. And he began to think about that passage. It's not that the feet themselves are stellar examples of feet. But the point is that those who go to great lengths to put aside their personal comfort, to put aside their desires in life, to orient their lives around the message of this king who has come in and said, I reign. And now they go forward with faith, no, no matter what the consequences are, to get out the good news. And the doctor, his name was Dr. Jaffrey, concluded that as he was going out to do this, those feet, no matter what was going on with them physically, in the eyes of God, were beautiful for getting that message out. This is what we can do, right? The weight of this needs to fall on each believer's shoulders this morning. You may never preach here on a Sunday morning, but in your homes, in your workplaces and schools, you can reach people that might never come here to listen to a sermon. Your potential is to reach people in your thousands. When I consider a room this size and the potential that you could have exponentially to reach people as you share the gospel with them, not to save them, that's God's job. That's the Holy Spirit's work. But for you to share with them, the potential for that gets up into the thousands, if not higher. My potential at one time here seems like it's pretty good as I'm preaching to a crowd of hundreds. But I get one shot where you have multiple shots every day. Preaching takes place beyond just the form of the sermon. And this is important. But when you go out, you are sent by Christ to get the good news out and to have that responsibility. 
Now, your message is the same that we preach here. You could boil it down to some simple things. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. And if you can know those things, not just know them, but believe them in your heart because you're believing in the one that it's about. It's about Jesus Christ. If you can share that with people, then you are faithfully giving them the good news. Now, some practical steps before I go on. I think you should be prepared to tell other people about what God has done to save you. Figure out a simple way to communicate with other people what you were like before you were saved. Then communicate the good news and how God led you to believe it. Describe how your life is different now that you know Jesus. I think the second thing, though, is that you can't stop there. You need, in addition to telling others what Jesus did for you, that's still very personal and necessary, you need to be faithful heralds to urge people to believe and respond to the message. This is one thing that we can't escape if we are to be faithful in our delivery of the good news. The good news calls for a response. It is the message, your God reigns. If Israel was antagonistic, I know that people we talk to will be antagonistic to it. Nevertheless, this is what we are called to be faithful to discharge and to tell others. But finally, it's rare to get to all these points in one conversation. Just remember that you are building a foundation of conversations that God will use. Paul says that some plant, some water, but God gives the increase. That means that you may have a part to play in sharing the gospel. So take advantage of those times and be ready to proclaim and share the good news. All right, there's one more step that's necessary in calling on the Lord. And that's when a person hears and believes. A person hears and believes. For context, look again at verse 14. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? Perhaps you've heard the statement, preach the gospel to everyone. If necessary, use words. It's a statement attributed to Francis of Assisi. On the surface, it sounds very spiritual and wise. But there's two problems with it. First, Francis of Assisi never said that. And two, it's completely unbiblical, right? If we don't use words to clearly help people know the good news, then people can't hear it and believe it, right? There's, there's certainly an aspect of us living out what we preach. And I think that's kind of getting to the best part of that statement that I said is unbiblical. There is an aspect in which, all right, you can speak the good news, but in, in your lifestyle, it doesn't back it up. Or if you're just the meanest, orneriest person, and you're telling people that God is merciful and kind, there are things that don't line up, right? But there's no escaping it. People can't hear and believe the gospel if we don't use words. It's essential. Now, we hear lots of news in any given day, right? We hear lots of things, and we're kind of inundated in this society by 
words coming at us from all sides, from the news sources, from the TV shows, to the podcasts and music we listen to, to the conversations in our homes and schools and noisy playgrounds. All these things weigh on us. And a lot of times we might hear, but not really listen. You know, I, I thought of this one time when one of our kids was doing something and they, they had they'd brought something into the house. They weren't really supposed to have that in the house and they were playing with it. And I said, you know, it's good that you have that, but you, you need to do that outside. And so the response was, okay, daddy. And they continued to do it. So I said something that often parents will say, did you hear what I said? Yes. All right. Then it registered. All right. Dad said something. I did hear it. That means I have to do something with it, right? There are certain levels of communication that speak to us and are not just background noise like so much of life is and so much of our culture and its messages. When God speaks, he expects us to listen, to hear him. Now, as I consider what this verse is talking about, there's one thing that stood out to me that is unique among the many things that Paul says. But he says in verse 14, how will they call on him in whom they have not believed, and how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? That's a unique phrase for Paul to use, believe in him. This is probably the most used phrase by the apostle John to describe salvation and what happens, right? And in essence, the construction means you're believing into this person. You're putting all of your weight, all of your confidence on who this person is. And it's not merely a matter of hearing a certain number of facts, even those things I mentioned earlier, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. These are the words of historic creeds of the New Testament church. They are true, they are facts, but believing in Jesus does not mean believing facts about Jesus. It means believing and trusting in a living savior a living person with whom you have a relationship and to whom you are accountable. I've been encouraged by the story of a pastor named Garrett Kell. Garrett's an interesting brother. He is a pastor in Virginia at Delray Baptist Church. He has a funny Twitter handle and it's, it's some, you go there sometime, you'll see videos that he applies to spiritual things and the videos are very funny. Like recently, it was somebody who threw a, a blanket over a crocodile's head and then tried to wrestle the crocodile down in a pit and ended up getting bitten and survived, was okay. But he said, this is what it's like when you try to deal with sin on your own. And he was right. right? But who is this guy? And I, I heard his story, and I want to summarize it here to illustrate and try to encourage you that believing in Jesus leads to real life change. Garrett Kell grew up in church, and he tells this story. You could look him up sometime. He grew up in church hearing the news, the good news, but dismissed it. By the time he was in elementary school, maybe something that you kids here this morning might relate to, from elementary to middle, middle school, began to be really concerned with how people thought about him. He describes himself as just a, a normal kid, 
more on the nerdy side, but he made a decision that he was not going to be a nerd anymore. He wanted to be cool. And so he started to change his behavior. He started to change his circles of influence. He started to hang out with people that he considered to be cool. And by the time he got into athletic teams in high school, his crowd started to drink and do drugs. And that became pretty normal for him until he got to Virginia Tech and began to take classes there. Um, He says he just really jumped headfirst into a sea of drug use, of alcoholic addiction, and of sexual addiction. And as he lived that lifestyle, he had many people who tried to tell him about Jesus. And those messages got in there kind of like a a, a stick that's down in your shoe. You, You have maybe a rock or a stick that gets down in your shoe. You can walk for a few steps, but you've got to stop and get it out. And that's what Christians became to him. Kind of like sticks or rocks down in his shoe, making him just uncomfortable enough to realize that he was wrong. Well, one of these times, and he actually wrote about this last Halloween. If you go on the Gospel Coalition, you pull up his story of how he was haunted one Halloween by a visit from one of his best friends, Dave. Dave was a partier. Um, Garrett was a partier. And so when he invited Dave to come and spend some time with him at Virginia Tech, He said he wanted to gift Dave with a big bag of weed. He had a six-pack of his favorite beer, and they were planning to party all weekend. And when Dave got there, sat down and talked with Garrett, and Garrett said, hey, I got these things for you. It's going to be a great weekend. And Dave responded back, you know, Garrett, I don't do those things anymore because I love Jesus, and he loved me enough to die for me. That way was, was wrong. But more importantly, I knew this weekend would be hard, but I've come here to tell you that Jesus loves you and that Jesus can save you. Garrett kind of blew that off. They went to the party that night. Dave went, but he didn't participate in what other people were doing. And the friends and Garrett kind of looked and considered him the poor Christian who really was missing out on life. But kind of fast forwarding through Garrett's story, he describes how God used circumstances and people and God's word to convict him of his sin. Until one night, months later, he called Dave when he was back in his hometown over a break. And Garrett, kind of high on a drug, became suddenly sober as he was fearful for his life. Called Dave, who came over, shared scripture with him, and they prayed. And Garrett said that became a turning point in his life of turning to Jesus, calling out on him, and turning from his sin. The rest of his story is really good. I hope you look it up sometime. And he's a faithful pastor now. Didn't become perfect right away, still struggled in many ways, but God pursued him, and he believed. All right, friends, what we're preaching here is real life change. Change to follow Jesus, not merely to say that you are a Christian. Garrett Kell told people that he was a Christian long before he became a Christian. The point is, are you in Jesus? Have you turned to the living Savior to save you from your sins? And so as this message goes out, we need to remember, just like this text has been used for for many years in all the history of Romans 10, 
We need people to go out like Dave and to share the news with the Garrets of the world. We need people to get in those spaces and to be willing to say the hard things out of love and out of a desire to see people know Christ. And this takes the power of God's spirit at work. So take this first point as an appropriate, I hope, an encouraging point to you to evangelize and to get out the good news. If you have received it, then share it. If you've got the good news, then get it out and tell others about it. But what do we do when people just utterly reject it? Of the many times that Garrett heard it, he rejected it. Of the people who shared it with him, he told them he didn't want anything to do with it. Do we give up? Do we stop? Do we lose heart? Well, in the second point, we're dealing with the rejection of the good news. And in verses 18 to 21, we see a shift turn that actually began back in verse 16. And if you look at that, it says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. That's a reality. That's what Paul said in Romans 1. He said that he has been sent out as an apostle to the Jews and the Gentiles to achieve the obedience of faith. He's out there with the intention that whoever hears the message, that their response would be, would be one of obedience to a sovereign Lord, that they would come to him for salvation and submit to him as master and king. So Paul says, not everyone, not everyone has called. And so again, we look at verse 16, it says, they have not all obeyed the gospel for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. This was the cry of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53 verse 1, right before he is about to tell Israel about their wounded, suffering, and murdered Messiah. Right? This was something that Israel rejected. They actually had the idea that in Isaiah 53 and the rest of Isaiah that talks about a triumphant Messiah, that maybe there's just two messiahs. They couldn't reconcile that they could be both in one man. But Isaiah is about to deliver the news of this suffering Messiah, this Christ who would come and die for the sins of the people. And he says, who, who will believe this? Who has believed this? When he was commissioned in Isaiah 6, he knew that he was going to a people who would be hard of hearing, they would be stubborn in their hearts, and they would not receive this message. So how do we deal with this? Well, rejection should be expected in verse 16. It should be expected. We should reckon that as we go with this message that it will offend. But Christians have known that throughout the past two millennia. Right? If, if we base our mission on keeping people happy and not offended, we will not tell them the truth. We can't be so concerned about not offending other people, but that is the message of our culture. Don't offend people and affirm whatever anybody says about anything. The only thing we should affirm with absolute clarity is what's in this book. I'm not saying to be 
unkind. I'm not saying to be mean. I'm saying to clearly speak what's in this book and be ready to say an answer to anyone who asks you for the hope that is within you. Now, another thing about rejection, we should understand that it's not a rejection of you if you are speaking God's words. It's a rejection of God's voice. Verse 18 says this. Paul asks a question. Maybe the issue is that Israel hasn't heard about Jesus. He says, well, let's answer that. I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. For, and then he quotes Psalm 19, verse 4. Their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Now, you Bible students might know that Psalm 19 is not talking about evangelism with words about Christ. It's talking about the glory of God that's visible in creation and that the voice of creation has gone out all over the world. But why is Paul suddenly shifting to talk about creation and not about evangelism? Well, on the one hand, I think he has permission to use analogies. And Paul is using an analogy here that works like this. As the voice of creation goes out and glorifies God to the ends of the world, so the supernatural voice of God has gone out through his messengers to reach people with the gospel wherever the world is. And who is he focused on right now? The Jews. Wherever the Jews were, wherever their colonies existed, wherever their cities were, Paul's mission was to go to the Jews first and then the Gentiles. And this is what he did. And I think this is absolutely true that the gospel to that point had gotten to them. And the issue here is not that God has been unfaithful, that God has not cared for the people and given them the gospel he had. This point here is that when we share the gospel and we get the word out, like creation has no problem coming to a point every new day to say, glory to God, the highest power in the universe set us in order and we continue in that order every day. Look up, look to him. So believers can go out and say, as God came here as a man and walked a perfect life in love for others to the cross and died and yet rose again and now lives and reigns and from heaven and will come back again, as certain as these things are, as certain you need to respond to him in faith. When you are rejected, take heart that you yourself are not being rejected so much as God's voice, God's word is rejected. So encouragement would be to keep sharing it. Some people ask, when do I stop when someone seems to have no interest at all? You may be like one of those prior people in the life of Garrett Kell, perhaps, who tried to share with him, and yet he blew them off and wanted nothing to do with them. God used other people down the road, but your job might be to put that rock in someone's shoe, to make them such that through your life and your words, they are uncomfortable and would come to a recognition of their sin. There's another thing that rejection is about. Rejection is not God's fault. It comes from a hard heart. We talked a lot about, in Romans 9, the sovereignty of God and that the reason for the hardness of heart was God's purpose of election. 
that God had a choice in this matter, and he is sovereign. He's the potter. We are the clay. But in this section, Paul says, there is another side to this. The reason for the rejection is not the purpose of election, but it is the hardness of the people's heart. In verse 19, Paul sets up another question, and then he brings in two witnesses. The witnesses are the law and the prophets, Moses and Isaiah. The second question is, I ask, did Israel not understand? Right? Maybe they heard, but maybe like a kid who hears a dad say, oh, don't do that right now, and they just kind of keep doing it. Right? Well, maybe they didn't understand. Right? Paul says, no, no, they understood. As a matter of fact, way back in the time of Moses in the book of Deuteronomy, the Lord said, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Paul experienced this, and he was actually a part of this in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 13. I'm going to put this scripture up on the screen. I'm going to set it up for you. When Paul was in a town called Antioch in Pisidia, he went, as was his custom, to the synagogue to preach the gospel to the Jews first, and then to the Gentiles. So his method was, first of all, I'm going to try to reach the reached, and then I'm going to shift to the unreached. If I reach the reached, then that message is like a city on a hill and can go out and others will hear it too. So that first Sabbath that he went there, the people responded and they were encouraged in the word of the Lord and they wanted to hear more. So Paul and Barnabas encouraged and exhorted them to continue with the Lord and to be dependent on his grace. And then in Acts chapter 13, verse 44, we read about what happened the next Sabbath. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. One thing should be very clear to us who are Gentiles here this morning we need to be exceedingly humble. The reason that the gospel got to you and got to me in the places that we were outside of Antioch and outside of Jerusalem is because the sovereign Lord determined to reach you and to send the good news to where you were. We're going to learn more about this next week in Romans chapter 11. The focus there is on how we who are Gentiles have been grafted into the vine of Israel to experience the blessings that first belonged to Israel and exclusively to them that now we have been invited in and made a part of that. That's grace. But in the meantime, Israel rejects their Messiah and the Messiah's ministry goes out into the rest of the world. On the one hand, it's sad. 
Imagine hearing that word from the Lord, but on the other hand, it's a cause for rejoicing as those who hear it can become followers of Jesus too and a part of something that they themselves could never be on their own. They could never save themselves. And the final place I want to look at, rejection does not stop God from working. And I have to be quick here. He says the second witness is Isaiah. Isaiah, he says, is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Here's what he is describing. On the one hand, verse 20, to the Gentiles. God didn't wait for them to come seeking him. You know, God deserves for people to come to him and to say, I am your servant, Lord. Here I am. But God reverses this and goes to the people who were ignoring him and says, I am your servant. Here I am. This is God's position towards you and towards me. I am your servant. Here I am, this humble servant who came to die and was raised from the dead to prove his lordship comes as a servant to you and to the Jews. God still holds out his hands. Verse 21, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. For the Jews, God says he holds out his hand to to them like a parent and he stands on the porch beckoning them, come home. Come home. Reminds me of that song, Softly and Tenderly, Jesus is Calling. Calling to you and to me. See from the portals, the porch. He's waiting and watching. Watching for you and for me. Come home. Come home. Ye who are weary, come home earnestly, tenderly. Jesus is calling. Calling. Sinner, come home. This is the nature of our God. When he is rejected, he stands there waiting. When he is rejected, he calls for sinners to come home. So what's our responsibility? Very quickly, two things. If you have it, share it. If you have the good news, share it. This is our responsibility. William Carey in his day was puzzled, and he wrote this, that multitudes sit at ease and give themselves no concern about the far greater part of their fellow sinners who to this day are lost in ignorance and idolatry. Surely it is worthwhile, Carey concluded, to lay out ourselves with all our might in promoting the cause and the kingdom of Christ. Because he lives today and has given us the promise that he is with us to the end of the age, we have both a motive and a power to do this. So if you have it, share it. And if you hear it today, believe it. If you hear it, respond to it. Turn from your sin to Jesus today. Maybe this is the day. After you've heard the gospel, how many times now? That you would turn to believe in the name of Jesus Christ and to call out to him today. Let's pray. We'll conclude with worship. And if you need to, you come and allow us the privilege to pray with you today. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your 
missionary heart and how you have reached the nations. You have reached the lost. And you have, to this day, continued to hear rejection after rejection. And yet you beckon to us to come and to believe and to come back to you. I pray that for this room and for these people here this morning, that they would turn, that they would know Jesus, and that you would give those of us who have received the good news the grace to share it. In Jesus' name, amen.